Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Patrick Sheehan, one of your hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Gil Eyal, professor of sociology at Columbia University, about his new book, The Crisis of Expertise, out in 2019 from Polity Press. In the book, Dr. Eyal analyzes the apparent rise of mistrust of experts of all types these days on big consequential topics, from Brexit to climate change to vaccinations. But the book goes well beyond the current crisis, digging into the history and negotiated meanings of expertise over time. He shows that the current mistrust is not so much new as it is the latest expression of an ongoing recursive tension of legitimacy that emerges when regulatory science and politics intersect. Dr. Eyal, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to begin uh, with where you start in the book by laying out sort of a first pass at our current crisis of expertise. You begin with a moment in 2016 in which Michael Gove, a conservative British politician, pro-Brexit campaigner, was being interviewed on a news show uh, in the lead up to the Brexit vote. Would you tell us about uh, that moment and then sort of expand that outwards to describe the the public perception of the larger crisis of expertise you're, you're taking on in the book? Okay. Um, so as part of the debates about Brexit, um, there was, of course, a lot of um, argument from the anti-Brexit side that, you know, this will be devastating to Britain economically. Um, and as the debate unfolded, the Sky uh, TV network invited British politicians one by one um, to to be interviewed about this Um just before Michael Gove, they interviewed David Cameron, the prime minister at the time who was against Brexit. Um, and then uh, when Gove was brought in, the, the interviewer, of course, sort of put it to him that, you know, all the experts from uh, the Bank of England, from the European Central Bank, uh, you know, from the World Bank, from, you know, a list of acronyms. Um, are saying, you know, that the consequences to British economy are going to be devastating. And, you know, he, he pushed him on that until at a certain point, Gov replied by saying um, something along the lines of uh, the British people uh, have had enough of experts who keep telling them what to do, keep getting it wrong, um, and are not elected, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this caused an uproar. Um, it was a headline in newspapers uh, the following day. Um, I must say, you know, when I first saw it, of course, I was also, you know, enraged. You know, what do you mean had enough of experts, etc.? Um, you know, when I came to think about it, of course, I saw he had a point. Obviously, um, this was happening, you know, less than ten years after the financial crisis. The experts who were telling Britain whatever they were telling did get it wrong before. Um, none of them predicted the crisis. None of them knew what to do about it. Um, many of them, in some sense, could have been entangled and involved in the dynamics that led to the crisis with the derivatives, etc. Um, so there was, you know, uh, it's not that golf was right or not, but uh, there was, um, you know, so he had a point. Um, so, so this is uh, um, this this is. Uh, sort of a characteristic moment that we are now seeing over and over again, um, just with the Trump administration, with the EPA uh, and climate change, or uh, with the arguments about vaccinations, you know, the other side comes and says, we don't believe the experts, why should we believe the experts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, this is kind of the setup because the response, 
my response, as I said originally, I was enraged like a lot of other people, and um, and and the response from among the experts and and uh, let's call it the educated classes would be to dismiss this and and to say. Um, you know, these people don't understand, et cetera, et cetera. But then in the second response, they would sort of throw their hands up in the air and they would say, yes, expertise is dead. Um, people don't believe the experts anymore. Um, the, you know, in the book, I refer to a book that was published in, the, in 2016 titled The Death of Expertise. Um, and, and that's the argument there, you know, namely that the internet has empowered people to think that they just do their own research and they don't need to think to, to, to listen to the experts, etc. cetera. Um, um, you know, and, and so now we have to ask ourselves, okay, is, is, does that make sense, right? Does um, uh, do events like this, and indeed the, the quite significant uh, attack on uh, regulatory science, does that mean that... Um, Expertise and experts are not important. So in the book, I sort of try to balance it um, and say what, inter- what is interesting about the moment right now is, is the fact that on the one hand, yes, there is a clearly a sort of um, a mistrust of experts, mistrust of science, at least in some uh, circles. But on the other hand, um, our society is one that... Um, is more dependent on experts in science than any society before it. It is science and expertise is sort of um, wired into the way politics are done, the way regulation is done, um, the way we we go about our daily lives even. Um, so what is interesting on the in this current moment is, is on the one hand, the, the immense reliance on expertise. We can't do without it. And yet, the mistrust of it—that, and that is what I call the crisis. Um, does that answer the question? It, perfectly. Um, and I want to, for the rest of the book, you do a wonderful job of historicizing the way experts have played into politics throughout history. Um, and I wonder if you could just really nail down to us. You, you argue that that expertise has always been this sort of contested lane between science and politics. Could you? Talk to us about what's the nature of the friction between those institutions. Uh, why isn't it, a, isn't it a simple question of experts present information, public considers it and decides? Um, and also, I, you mentioned that what's contested here is not all of science, let's say. You know, no one's up in arms about uh, the latest findings in quantum physics. physics. Um, help us understand, you know, the nature of the, of the tension and what exactly what exactly is coming together? You talk about regulatory science and democratic politics. Yeah. Um, that's what the books is, is focused on. And I should just say parenthetically that in discussions after the book, people said to me, well, you know, that's a bit narrow because you could see that um, uh, there is mistrust or uh, sort of a downgrading of experts across the board, not only in regulatory science. And I think that's true. So I can, I can come back to that in a second, but at the moment, let me just say that, um, you know, often uh, when people think about this, they, they sort of feel that um, science and reason are under attack. And this is the most common in, in this term that is used today when we, we're talking about that we live in a post-truth era. Um, I don't buy that. 
Um, I don't know what would be a post-truth era because um, if we are in a post-truth era, it means that in the past we lived in truth. And I just don't think that's true. Um, um, and so the book really tries to ask, okay, um, where exactly is the crisis? Um, and I do focus on, on uh, regulatory science, which is a very new term, by the way. It's not something that is... A, it's a term that was introduced in the 1980s. It's, it's not something that was um, used before. It was a term to, that was introduced in the 1980s to identify a phenomenon that was really growing in significance from the 50s onwards. Um, and so um, the reason why I, I um, think you know, there is this fraught relationship um, between uh, science and politics, um, and that this fraught relationship is where the crisis is, is as follows. Um, uh, increasingly, in modern society, um, the state, legal institutions, and politicians uh, need uh, uh, input from uh, science and experts. Um, this is because um, we live in what you might call a state-regulated capitalism, namely uh, an economic and political system that systematically produces um, redistributive consequences that Im impact people in an unequal way. And you can think about it in terms of income, you know, who, you know, tax policy or whatever, you know, who gets what. But also you can think about it in terms of pollution as well. Our system produces... Uh, pollutes the, the globe in a way that impacts everybody, but also impacts us unequally. Some neighborhoods are more polluted than others. Turns out that typically, you know, neighborhoods where poor people live, um, you know, uh, etc. And and so you can extend this point about the redistributive effects of state-regulated capitalism, you know, from you know just uh, fiscal matters to pollution to health consequences uh, in terms of who is treated, who is not, for what, uh, uh, what illnesses receive uh, um, attention, etc. Now, as long, uh, as long as this was decided by the market, um, you know, one could always basically uh, defend uh, those unequal consequences as a result of fair competition. But since you know we exist in a system in which um, the state plays an imp uh, you know a crucial role in setting the rules of the game, uh, regulating it, um, incentivizing some actors and some results, and not incentivizing others, etc. Um, the the unequal results you know could be traced back to the decisions of politicians. Um, that means that politicians need to um, defend those decisions. This is not my own argument. You know, it's a has been an argument of neo-Marxists, um, uh, Habermas, O'Connor, many others. Um, you know, ever since the 1960s. Um, and um, one way of doing this, this is to indeed recruit science and scientists. Um, uh, to defend those decisions, and not just defend those decisions. I mean, I'm presenting it as perhaps a, a bit too cynically. Basically, to inform the process of decision making, 
in a way that you know could one could make a um, you know a good face argument that it has been rational, that it has taken into account empirical evidence, that it has um, you know attempted to uh, balance uh, uh, you know different interests and and, and different considerations, etc. And the argument of neo-Marxists, you know, ba- 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 back in the 60s and the 70s was that in this way, science um, helps to, uh, plays an ideological role, helps to resolve the legitimation crisis of the state. But uh, in reality, when we look at it in the, you know, the perspective of 50 years, what happens here is that science gets infected with that legitimation crisis, namely, um, uh, you know, politics gets, as I say in the book, politics gets scientized um, in the sense that science is brought in uh, uh, to inform a great deal of, of political decisions. But the, the obverse of that is that science becomes politicized. And, you know, the, the examples of this uh, are, you know, um, multiple uh, from decisions about, you know, where to cite uh, nuclear reactors to decisions about um, clinical trials for um, um, medications for HIV uh, um, to um, you know any of those things um, are now um, matters that are politicized and they are politicized um, in the sense that the science that is involved I call it regulatory science is different than you know your um, your basic science, uh, your sort of basic science that is interested in figuring out basic facts about you know how nature works, because regulatory science is ultimately meant to assist and arrive at a at a decision, um, and this is the point at which um, it becomes therefore um, contested. When I say uh, to assist and arrive at a decision. You can note that the characteristic concepts and devices of regulatory science are all aiming at that. Um, uh, things like um, uh, defining what are the acceptable levels of pollution, for example. Um, this is clearly uh, research that is informed by basic knowledge about how nature works but also is required to do something that a scientist doesn't necessarily need to do, which is um, take into account, you know, what is going to be the impact of humans, uh, what is going to be the impact on humans in a real environment, not in the laboratory environment, in a real environment that is saturated also with other pollutants over a life course, um, take into account also the economic consequences of regulating or not regulating and at what level, uh, and then arrive at a decision. So concepts like cutoffs and acceptable levels are the characteristic concepts of regulatory science, but they are um, essentially contested. They are intrinsically contested. They, they always involve you know, certain um, heuristics, rule of thumbs, uh, decision about how to balance contradictory interests, etc., um, and we see this with vaccination. Yes, vaccination is strongly contested because um, what is involved in it is is a decision that um, the benefits to public health outweigh some small risk that you know uh, um, does exist and really does exist for individuals. Um, it's not that the people who uh, objective vaccination don't know anything about it. 
yes, there is a small risk. Um, and, and um, you know, but, but the question is, you know, when you balance it against the consequences of public health, um, what's more important? So, so this is kind of the terrain that the book is examining, you know, um, the terrain of regulatory science that is um, politicized for those reasons that I was talking about. That's great uh, examples and, and discussion of it. Um, I guess from here, I want to talk about uh, you've got a number of really great like two by two tables, which I think everyone appreciates uh, in the book. Um, particularly, um, you talk about two sort of axes of uh, tensions uh, around what expertise ought to do in society, and there's one one sort of a problem of extension of expertise. The question being. Uh, who should be included as an expert? How much should it be monopolized by a small group of people, technocrats, or how much should it be sort of dispersed and democratized? <clears throat> and a second axis, which is, I think you write, the prob- problems of trust. Um, when do we think expertise should sort of be uh, mechanical and objective, uh, exemplified by can we can we make our experts just an AI algorithm versus how much should we be trusting people with particular um, trained judgment? I wonder if you could talk about each of those. Maybe first the question of extension, um, how that's played out, and then I'll ask you about uh, about the trust question. Okay, so the but the term, uh, the problem of extension is not my own. Is actually comes from uh, Harry Collins and Robert Evans' book, also about expertise, and and um, they're really the ones who kind of started the discussion about this. So what it refers to is as follows. Um, Ever since probably the 80s, um, it has become clearer and clearer that um, in those debates about regulatory science, uh, there's a new cast of characters. And the new cast of characters has been described in various ways, um, sometimes called lay experts. This is a term that Steve Epstein used. Uh, Collins and Evans call them experience-based experts. Um, other people call them stakeholders, um, um, advocates, etc. Point being is is that um, um, those debates become a site where uh, not just the credential experts uh, have a say, but people who uh, have expertise in in you know in other forms. Um, and often people who have a personal stake in the result become important um, uh, players. Um, and uh, once you actually consider that in a broader perspective, you realize, yes, this was a response to the legitimation crisis of regulatory science. One of the responses was, um, since uh, um, experts are mistrusted, what you can do is you can bring lay people in, stakeholders, uh, advocates, whatever you call it, um, and involve them in decision-making um, and, and in this way legitimate the decision. This was built, written into uh, the, EPA, the legislation that created the EPA in the United States, that it should have um, you know, uh, environmental impact assessments and that those assessments would uh, go to the, the community communities that are impacted, have town halls, have people uh, participate in decision-making, et cetera. Now, often that can be just a, you know, a way of, of um, uh, protecting yourself from criticism without really taking into account uh, the points of view of, of uh, lay people. 
Um, but, you know, uh, lay people have demanded a seat at the table and, and um, they increasingly have it. Now, uh, Collins and Evans raise the questions and, and they say, um, well, where should you draw the line? Um, if we're thinking about vaccination, for example, everybody are impacted um, and everybody can claim some form of knowledge or expertise about it. So who should really be um, uh, participants in debates about issues that are technical, that require the expertise, but also impact, you know, ordinary lay people? Um, is there a, a, do we have some kind of knowledge that will allow us to draw the line somewhere and say uh, only these people really should participate in this debate? Only this form of expertise is, is really pertinent. Um, and um, I think Collins and Evans point out quite uh, correctly that existing sociological approaches to professions and expertise give you no um, no way of dealing with this question um, because they basically tend to treat expertise as socially constructed. Um, and so they they try to offer, you know, a, a way of distinguishing between who has relevant expertise or not. Um, I, this is not a route I follow in the book because I, I just don't believe people are going to listen to sociologists um, uh, you know, I mean, they would ask, well, would, would you have the expertise uh, uh, to tell us who has expertise and, and uh, you know, um, you're going to dive into this rabbit hole and never come out. Um, but what I, what I try to do in the book is, first of all, uh, show that our different approaches and theories to expertise can be described indeed as um, giving different answers to this question and or, or different ways of grappling with this problem. Um, and also, sort of look at look at it as one of the res, uh, as, as a dimension of responses to the crisis, um, and it can be it could be all the way to, uh, uh, from you know one side sort of boundary work that says only this group of experts who are uh, you know credentialed and have been selected very carefully to be neutral. Can make the decision about this. This is a sort of advisory committee appointed by you know the National Academy of Sciences, something like that. And then they would also say, let's shroud their debates and and discussions, um, and so so people don't know what they're discussing because otherwise it will become too politicized. Let them be protected, and this way they, you can achieve neutrality. And then all the way to the other side, which says you know this should be a free for all. Everybody who's impacted should be able to. Um, uh, engage in a debate in a transparent um, manner. Um, I don't really come down on either side. Uh, what I try to show is that those are responses to the crisis that actually sort of exacerbate it. Um, you, the attempt to to um, limit the debate to you know to just a, the certified group of experts is meant to communicate neutrality, but is often uh, uh, seen as basically, well, they, they have something to hide. Um, but opening up the debate to, to, you know, whoever considers themselves lay experts um, typically prevents arriving at a decision, um, really extends the time, um, also creates an opening for uh, what others have called the emergence of doubt, yeah, um, corporations and other interested actors who then participate in the debate 
uh, with uh, sort of an interest of keeping it always open, saying, you know, oh, well, there's, there's, there's another side, you know, and you, you have to have a balanced argument, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's some doubt regarding climate change, et cetera. Um, this is the sort of um, dangers that, you know, fully open uh, conversation on these issues um, creates. Um, so it's not that I have a solution to this. The book is called The Crisis of Expertise, and it does not uh, um, actually have a solution for it. That's great. And yeah, I, I must say that some of my democratic instincts, you know, my first pass, I, I want to include, you know, obviously include as many people as we can in these kind of decisions that are going to affect everyone. But you, yeah, you make the point that inclusion doesn't necessarily lead to legitimacy. And I, and I particularly appreciate the point about um, there, there may be no, no decision will be come to. If everyone's included, we get, there's no final stopping point the way an FDA on a final decision. Um, that's I hadn't thought about before. Um, and I, then I, now let's move to the second axis, um, <clears throat> which is trust. Would you sort of describe to us the, the two poles of that and, and give us as many uh, examples as you can along the way to help us uh, understand each each part okay um so so um the, this is really uh, now a question not about who should be included in the debate um but how to create trust in um you know the decisions and the regulatory uh, mandates that come out of those debates um and um if you look uh, so, so the two poles here are um, the following. One is, um, you know, we trust in experts. Namely, um, you know, you go to your doctor, for example, because you believe that the doctor has experience. Um, and in fact, you try to pick a doctor that, um, so in the book I say, you know, uh, you know if, if, you are, if you discover that you have cancer, you're going to try to pick doctors who have a lot of experience, who have seen a lot of patients like you, who, um, uh, as we know from people who have studied the experts and expertise, um, you know, they, they have now cultivated this kind of judgment about what details in the case are the important details that one should attend to. Um, so there's been a lot of research on, on experts and expertise and, 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 um, what I found very convincing is the point that um, uh, one is an expert not by virtue of knowing the general rules, but actually knowing the details, yes? That knowing to take in a, a picture, um, in this case, let's say the picture of a patient, um, and being able to compare it to many, many, many similar patients you've seen in the past, and then knowing to zero in on what details here are the most relevant. And so, um, you know, um, the idea is, is, you know, we can trust the, the, the experienced experts. And if you do the, do the etymology of the word expertise, it does come from uh, the, word, the, the, the word for experience and tried, somebody who has been tried, somebody who has accumulated uh, knowledge and know-how by means of experience. Um, and a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of institutions in our society do indeed attempt to 
attempt to create trust by means of selecting the experienced experts, guaranteeing you know that these are the the best experts, and and then relying on their judgment. Um, you know, uh, parties in court, for example, will bring experts to testify um, on their behalf. Um, then, however, um, we have been. Uh, exposed over the last 50 to 60 years to many, many, many cases where the best expert judgment has been proven wrong and, and in fact, has been proven biased. And, and the standards that are recognized among the experts for what is good judgment turn out to be uh, parochial and, and problematic. The best example is... is um, uh, probably what Simon Cole wrote about the f- fingerprint ident- uh, identification. Yeah, um, you know those experts uh, in the police, the FBI, etc., who have a set of rules and a lot of experience in deciding what fingerprints match, and then they, you know, they'll spe- spectacular uh, problems with what turns out to be the argumentation as to what matches or not, and then you realize that you know. A lot of the decisions are based on sort of heuristics and rules of thumb and conventions that are agreed upon among the experts. Um, And while for them it's taken for granted, somebody looking at it from the outside would start to question that that judgment. And similarly, you know, Michael Gove, when he says, you know, British people are tired of the experts, it's basically saying, you know, yes, we relied on the expert judgment of, of the economists and look where it got us. Um, the other poll is basically an attempt to get away from expert judgment and to say, let's define a standardized procedure that mechanically, without needing to resort to judgment, will arrive at the correct decision. Um, and, you know, this, this is... Um, um, has been suggested by, um, you know, this fa- a famous book by uh, Ted Porter uh, from UCLA, um, um, Trust in Numbers, um, where the suggestion is that the reliance on quantitative measurement, uh, standardized procedures, and we are getting it to, to it today, algorithms and, and artificial intelligence is a solution to the legitimation problem or the trust problem of the experts. Um, basically, um, you know, instead of relying on the judgments of fallible actors, um, we will define a procedure that will arrive at, you know, at the same decision if the same da- data is there, you know, you know, in a more uh, um, trustworthy, foolproof way. Um, Porter notes, and I think quite correctly, that this tends to be the situation when experts are weak um, and somewhat mistrusted and do not command a lot of um, credibility in societies, that then there is a tendency to replace experts with trust in numbers. Um, and so I point out in the book, you know, that there are, the, we, you know, uh, in there are many areas in regulatory science that that we rely on this. For example, the use of randomized controlled trials uh, uh, in clinical trials uh, to decide when uh, medications are 
efficacious and safe enough, um, you know, to be sold to the public, et cetera, et cetera. We do not, uh, we used to rely on expert judgment in this. Uh, the way to decide this would, used to be to distribute those to doctors and have the doctors report back on, you know, whether they were useful and safe or not. Um, we don't do that anymore ever since, um, you know, the, the 1960s. Instead, we have, you know, sort of a foolproof, uh, you know, uh, bl- double-blind, randomized control trial um, that attempts to eliminate any element of judgment because judgment is taken to be biased um, uh, in order to arrive at, uh, you know, a clear uh, decision as to what is efficacious and safe and what is not. Um you know, in the book, I point out, and I'm not the first one to do this, that there are a lot of problems with this. That you know, randomized controlled trials, for example, are not one cannot quite trust them. That they don't arrive always at the correct decisions. That they leave an enormous amount actually outside their purview. That they um, you, they cannot, uh, uh, for example, protect populations from. Um, relatively rare but very serious uh, consequences of medications, um, etc. So the, the way to see this um, pool is to see that there is um, a set of reactions to the crisis of mistrust in experts, um, but each of those reactions, again, sort of undermine one another. So when you rely on what is called mechanical objectivity, trust in numbers, randomized controlled trials, you communicate the sense that experts are biased and you cannot um, cannot rely on them. Um, so that undermines, you know, other kinds of arrangements in which we, we were trusting of experts before. Uh, so this is part of this crisis that I'm describing um, in which the, the very reactions to the crisis actually exacerbated. That's wonderful, and I and I <clears throat> encourage readers to get the book because the clarity of the, the sort of different four different boxes. We, we you talk, Doctor Ayal, about four different responses to the legitimation crisis, kind of along these axes, and it provides a lot of clarity as, as someone who's observing these happen all around. I, I want to ask, um, particularly, you have a, a chapter in there just on trust, sort of the concept of trust, uh, and towards the end of the chapter, you come to describing trust in experts as a almost sort of sacred relationship that can be polluted um, that I found very interesting. Would you, would you talk to us a little bit about that? And you, you give a sort of vignette of someone going into a, into the doctor's office. Um, maybe you could start there or, or just, could you talk a bit more about what is the basic trust? So yeah, this is a hard one. And I, and, and, and I must say, you know, this, this chapter was the newest part of the book and, you know, I'm not, and, I'm not completely uh, done with this question. In fact, next year I'm starting a, a sort of a two-year Mellon Soil seminar on, on uh, trust and mistrust in experts at Columbia University. Uh, and so we will con- continue thinking about this, this question. Um, but a couple of things. The first point is, is that you know, we, we are very concerned about mistrust of experts. And we say, you know, whenever you hear, you know, people resist vaccinations or do not believe in climate change, you, you, you say, how can they not trust? Um, uh, or how, come they, how come they are so, so uh, misinformed as to not understand? But at the point I'm making in this chapter is that the real mystery, the real question is not mistrust, but it is trust. 
Um, and this is not my own point. It's also um, the, 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 the theorists who have written about trust have made this point, uh, Anthony Giddens, Nicola Schulman, and others. Um, mistrust, and it's also, it's, um, you know, the, the common saying is that it is, it is um, um, very hard to build trust and very easy to destroy it. Is true, yes, and that's why mistrust is not actually so much of a puzzle. Many, many, many things can create mistrust. What is a puzzle is why do we trust the experts? I mean, at the end of the day, we are asked to trust um, knowledge that um, we don't quite understand, that uh, we haven't seen how it was created, that we will not be able quite to trace the chain of reasoning, the chain of analysis, the chain of data that has led um, to to the final decision. Um, and that, um, you know, this knowledge uh, at the end of the day led to sort of weighed certain options and arrived at uh, the argument that this option is the best, but um, many other possibilities are there. So why do we trust experts? I mean, um, in the book, I give a lot of examples, but vaccination obviously is the best one. Um, you know, um, I, I quote, uh, and it's an, uh, it's from an article by two British sociologists who interviewed um, parents who, who began to resist vaccination. And one of them says, um, I know that it is a very small chance. It's a minuscule chance. So this person is not actually ill-informed. They're well-informed. But then he says, he or she, I forget um, if it was the mother or the father. But they say, um, what if it does happen? And how could you forgive yourself? And that you living the rest of your life knowing that you did this to your child. Now, what comes out here is is um, is the fact that while you know the the all the knowledge that we have indeed does indicate um, that uh, you know the, the risk is small. Um, that's not how the how the balance is going to be for ordinary people. Um, uh, you know because. Even small risk can become uh, something of huge consequence um, and then a source of mistrust. So a person who comes in, you know, originally trusting a vaccination, when the question comes up, should I or should I not do it because there is this small risk? The moment this question comes up, mistrust appears and, and it, it becomes quite easy to decide not to do it. Um, so there's a sort of a lack of balance here. Um, and that indicates, to me at least, is that um, um, you know the reason why we trust, let's say, vaccination or other forms of of um, the ways in which expertise is, is embedded in our lives is because it is embedded in routines. It is embedded in routines that are not um, uh, and and recognized scripts, scripts and familiar scripts, etc. And those do not foreground the question of trust and the question of risk. Um, the moment it is foregrounded, the game is over. 
Yeah, uh, but as long as it is not full grounded, you know, it it can create trust. So, so trust exists to the extent that it is embedded in um, routines, familiar stories, familiar scripts, um, etc. So, um, you know, where I live in New York City, you know, you have those. Um, well, you used to have them. Actually, you don't have them anymore. Uh, those yellow. Um, uh, cards on which all your child's vaccinations are noted, um, plus the height and weight, you know, and and all the other milestones of development. And so you come into the doctor's office with this and um, you compare it with other parents and it, it just becomes part of a routine script. Um, and the question of, of trust is not raised. Um what, so, so what I, I was trying to show um, in this chapter is that um, this, the, the routines and the scenes that create trust are frames in the Goffmanian sense, um, frames that, that um, uh, do not foreground the future, Yes, the, 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 the what if of the longer term. And also do not foreground um, the moment of decision, the, the quote-unquote leap of faith, should I do it, should I not. They foreground the, the, the middle term, if you will, the middle range, the middle temporal range of the, the, the familiar routines of, of um, you know, going to the doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and those... Uh, familiar routines, frames of the of the middle temporal range become part of the doxa, become part of the what is taken for granted um, in everyday life. Um, yeah, uh, I, I forget the, the the final part of your answer of your of your question. No, that that was that was it. Um, I was trying to the nature. The trust relationship between expert and laity, and I think that's great steps. Um, I want to. You, you spend so much of the book. <clears throat> oh, I, I forget. I, I I now remember. Um, there was one other point is is that um, trust um, is almost a sort of an extension of yourself. Yes, you by trusting, um, not just other people, but those routines in which your lives are embedded. You sort of extend the boundaries of the self to include them. And that means, and this is how the chapter ends, that means that um, when there is a sense of that trust betrayed, it's experienced as pollution yeah, in the sense that Mary Douglas talks about it, in the sense that um, something foreign has, been, has entered into what was familiar, what was me, has crossed boundaries between the inside and the outside, etc., um, and this is why um, this sense of pollution um, accompanies um, the, the, the moments of failure of trust, uh, the, the appearance of mistrust. And, and pollution, as we know from uh, Mary Douglas, is a form of social criticism directed at the experts and those that are on top. Um, um, and so... Yeah, that's 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 uh, that's how the chapter ends. In order to point out that that those episodes of mistrust then become sources of powerful criticism of of um, experts and and uh, regulatory science.
And then <clears throat> towards the end of the book, you know, you spend so much time um, analyzing the critiques of expertise that we're seeing today and that we've seen over time. Um, towards the end of the book, you give a chapter in which you start with a biblical story uh, as a way of thinking about the impacts that these critiques um, actually will have on the long-term place of experts. <clears throat> Would you tell us about uh, Balaam's blessing and then sort of how it, how, how it can help us uh, to think more clearly about this moment? Yeah. Uh, so in this, in this, just before the people of Israel, after they journeyed in the desert uh, for 40 years, arrived to the land of Canaan, um, they are uh, sort of camping uh, in the Transjordan area. And the people around them are quite scared. And uh, one of the kings uh, decides, okay, I'm going to go to my prophet, uh, my uh, magician, and have them have him curse these people. Um, so he goes to Bilam and uh, and asks him to you know to curse the people of Israel. Uh, Bilam uh, is very reluctant, and um, on the way. To doing that, he meets with an angel of God, and the angel of God uh, stops his way, uh, says he shouldn't do it, and he says, but I was told to do it. And he says, okay, you can go ahead, but you will say only what I will have you say. Um, and when Bilam comes there, opens his mouth to curse the people of Israel, he instead blesses them. He says, you know, oh, you sons of Jacob, you know, may your seed will become as, multi as, you know, as plentiful as the... As the uh, you know the grains of sand on the on the on the seaside, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and for years to to come, um, this becomes sort of a, an idiom in Hebrew about um, you know uh, somebody who sets out to curse and ends up blessing, namely the way in which uh, sometimes an attack can become the opposite, or attack or a criticism can achieve the opposite of, of what it does. Um, and I use this in order to inject a little bit of optimism uh, into the story of the crisis of expertise, um, pointing out multiple times, multiple ways in which the critique of experts and the critiques of the institutions of regulatory science ends up shoring them up. Um, especially, uh, I use uh, uh, wonderful examples given by um, uh, given by uh, Carpenter in his great book about the FDA, um, in which, you know, the, every time somebody comes up and say, you know, the FDA got it wrong, you know, or there is corruption, or, or uh, you know, how could they uh, get this decision wrong, et cetera, et cetera, they end up saying, um, what we need to do is to give more money to the FDA. Or what we need to do is to strengthen the, the you know, the decision-making process at the FDA. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so uh, the critique ends up shoring up um, the significance, the position, and um, the 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 need for um, the experts, the institutions of expertise, etc. And that really sort of returns to the point I kind of started with. Yeah. Um, yes, we are in the middle of a you know multi-pronged attack on experts and, and regulatory science uh, from some politicians. Yes, there is mistrust of experts from activists and, and others. Um, but the other side of it is the fact that we are, we are very much reliant on them. 
and in the United States at least, um, you know, it, um, it's very hard to arrive at uh, binding political decisions about certain topics without relying on experts. Um, so, you know, the Trump administration, for example, is trying to get rid of a wholesale of, you know, ways of regulating pollution. But they're challenging court. And when they're challenging court, what they need to do, according to American law, is to show that the decision was not capricious. And how do you show that the decision was not capricious? You show that it was taken in a rational manner, taking into account empirical evidence, consulting the relevant experts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, you know, um, even uh, attempts to, to attack experts and get rid of them have to rely um, on um, the institutions of, of, of expertise. So that is sort of the, what I'm trying to show in this chapter is, is that uh, as bad as things are, um, and they are bad. Um, it, it, it's it's not that the other side is uh, was trying to minimize the, the reliance on on um, experts that can really achieve that. Um, at the end of the day, they they're always sort of cast back um, uh, towards a reliance on experts. The other example I give there is um, uh, uh, it's called surfacestation.org. This was an attempt by um, climate um, skeptics, uh, climate change skeptics, and and con- and uh, conservative activists to sort of audit climate science. And what they did was they say, well, how do we know that really the temperatures are changing? Maybe they have a measurement, and maybe they're measuring it wrong. Um, and they basically said, okay, we'll go and do our own measurements at all where all the climate stations are, where all the surface stations are. Um, and, you know, they engage in a quite impressive uh, campaign of citizen science. And for a while, you know, they had articles in which they said, no, we arrived at somewhat different results, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, what happened is, is that um, they ended up discovering that the measurements were more or less correct, that um, other factors also have to take into account. They basically were drawn into um, the debates, the arguments, and the evidence mobilized by climate science. And once they got in, they had to play by those rules of the game. And if you look up surfacestation.org on the internet today, it's closed. Yeah, they... they, um, failed in that fight. Um, so, you know, obviously that's just one example and there are many others on, on the other side as well, but but um, um, I just did not want to paint a completely bleak picture there. Yeah, the, we, are, uh, we are reliant on uh, experts and expertise and the institutions of regulatory science. And they're not going to go away just because, um, you know, some administration is trying to change this or that regulation. And it did have that effect on, on a reader uh, to inject some hope. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, another question. Um, you are, like you said, short on prescriptions uh, about what to do on the crisis, but you do offer a few things. Um, one is a, a nice little metaphor about trying to, quote, ride the vortex of this crisis. Um, and a second is the offer in the conclusion. Um, you offer term trans science. Um, for helping us to think about this and as sort of a piece of advice for people who themselves uh, are considered experts about how how to present themselves and expert knowledge. 
Would you would you talk to us both about about riding the vortex and then about trans science? Okay, um, I, I'm not completely sure about riding the vortex. I must say, I use this metaphor, uh, this this thing that I was told when I was a child. Um, uh, going to the beach, and I was told that there's those um, maelstroms, those vortex, those riptides, um, you know, that you have to be careful about. And the thing about them is that if they swept you, you shouldn't fight them. This, you can't. And if you fight them, you'll just get too tired and you'll drown. Your best bet is to, first of all, try to signal to other people to come help you. And then you have to try to ride them because they might spit you out. Um I cannot uh, don't take this as a you know as a prescription because I don't know if this really works. I never uh, luckily I was never in that situation. Um, uh, but the metaphor here is is something that I start the book with. I say you know if we want to get through this, we first of all have to get clear our language of certain terms. We we should stop talking about how this is a post truth area um, and the facts are, are on our side or that this is an attack on science and, and how those people can deny science. And I don't like the term climate deniers or, or uh, anti-vaxxers or, or something like that. These are terms of polarization. And um, the thing is, is trying to fight the vortex, trying to fight the crisis of, uh, of, of, um, of expertise leads to increased polarization, which I think just um, uh, just exacerbates the crisis. Instead, I think um, one uh, one should be able to recognize the point at which the other side is 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 rational um, and is not um, you know completely misguided and and um, motivated by um, you know some some ulterior motives um, and should attempt to create a conversation. Um, so vaccination, I think, is a good example. Most, the pe- most of the people who decide at one point or another um, not to vaccinate their child are not anti-vaxxers. They're not ideologically absolutely opposed to vaccination. Often they say, I'll pick and choose what I want, what I want to vaccinate my child, and what I don't, and so when you attack them in vehement terms, as you know, as deniers of you know the importance of vaccine or something like that, you ultimately turn them into anti-vaxxers. So you exacerbate the problem. So riding the vortex is you know continuing this hand-to-hand fight in the corridors of science, regulatory science. Um, Without, uh, with as, as little name calling as as um, um, as as possible, and um, without sort of always attempting to resort to the argument that the facts are on our sides, because these are not facts; these are estimates. That uh, and, and that means that their credibility is something that is in question and has to be shown over and over again. That's so much for riding the vortex. Um, Transscience is not my own term. It's a term introduced by Alvin Weinberg, who was, um, you know, a, a famous physicist and um, the director of the Oak Ridge uh, National Laboratories. Um, what he said was that, and that was back in the 1970s, he says a lot of those debates are not really about science. They're about what he called transscience, namely questions that science actually cannot quite answer. 
Now, I don't, I don't need to actually, I don't want to get right now into the whole discussion of why is it that science cannot answer them, what kind of questions they have. But this is the important point. It's, it's, I started with it as well. These are not questions about facts that, you know, science can give a, a, a very clear answer about. These are questions about estimates, assessments, um, things for which you have to create credibility, things for which you have to orchestrate credibility. And we have to recognize that. Um, now, we talked about credibility in a sense before because we talked about trust. Yes, what creates trust? Is it you know the expert, trust in expert judgment or or, or the, the mechanical objectivity or something like that? Neither of this quite work. We we need to um, um, you know we need to come up with new ways of um, bolstering the credibility of those kind of assessments and estimates and and um, knowledge that is created by regulatory science. Um, so that's kind of like where the book ends. Uh, the book says, you know, this we have to recognize this is not about science. It's about this realm in between science and politics, a realm in which, yes, data matters, but credibility matters as well. Um, and we need to come up with new institutions that um, – allow the data to speak, but also orchestrate credibility. Um, and we, this is our crisis. We don't have the right institutions right now. Or they, they are at the moment, uh, um, um, you know, uh, are under attack. I, I don't have an answer, but just to give a, an because I don't think a book can give an answer to that. You know, this is something that has to be worked out um, as, you know, John Dewey would have said experimentally, um, you know, through public conversation and public attempts to, to create those institutions. But just to give an example of, of what that could be, I mean, on one side of the debate is, um, um, you know, is the suggestion, and I forget the name of the the, the Supreme Justice. Um, I forgot his name. Uh, is to be, sorry, is it Stephen Breyer? Stephen Breyer, yeah. So um, I found myself, you know, surprisingly attracted to his suggestion, even though it is not where I started at all. And his suggestion is, is, you know, we need, he said, a new administrative agency. Yeah, it seems weird that, you know, in this day and age where there's so much mistrust of the state, um, this would be the solution. And I'm not sure this is the solution. But what he says is, you know, the, the, the... uh, and this really resonated with me as, as you know, as we were going through the investigation of President Trump and civil servant after civil servant came and testified in front of Congress. And you suddenly saw once again something that we forgot, you know, that civil servants are committed, are committed, you know, to the good of the public, that they are, uh, you know, that they are often uh, find, they bind themselves by very strong ethical standards that they have, you know, experience and expertise that is, you know, that is pertinent. Um, you know, that, that they they defend a particular way of, of running the, the affairs of state that is informed by expertise and by rational procedure. And so Breyer suggests, okay, since, since our politics of risk and expertise are, are under attack, let's attempt to 
recreate the prestige of an administrative agency and create an administrative, administrative agency that is absolutely dedicated to the question of how do you regulate risk? I mean, it is done in the APA and in other places right now, but this would be, uh, you know, a, a, a dedicated civil service career, um, you know, and, and um, a place where, you know, the best and the brightest will be recruited, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one way in, in, in which creating a sort of a trans-scientific institution, this one sort of biased a little bit more towards the political side, the legal side, the, the creation of credibility. Um, on the other side, you could talk about the IPCC as, a, as a, an example of a trans-scientific institution. Um, but as to you know how to protect and bolster the credibility of these institutions, I don't, I don't think I can give a prescription. Well, Dr. Ayal, we've taken up a lot of your time. The last question we'd like to ask uh, on Newberg's network is about your forward-looking research. You've mentioned a couple of things that you're interested out of here. Are there particular questions that you plan to pursue after this book? Some things that have come up that are particularly interesting to you? Yeah, so so I, I want to say a, a word about this Melon Soil uh, seminar because yes, my work will be dedicated still less in the next couple of years to this question of mistrust of experts, um, and and um, the seminar is meant on the one hand to be a sort of a and a investigation into the nature of trust and the institutions and the and the routines and the and the mechanisms that create trust bringing in um, scholars that are not just from the social sciences but also from the humanities um, and also natural scientists and on the other hand we'll also explore in a series of public events uh, some of the sources of the mistrust of experts and how can they be um, um, not overcome so much, but but uh, uh, negotiated with, uh, discussed, opened up, etc. By holding public forums that that um, bring in people, um, you know, from various uh, parts of society to discuss this. So we will have a, a you know a semester dedicated to climate science and the matter of climate change, and we'll have climate scientists speaking to members of the public, and we will uh, have that semester followed up by you know going into some of the neighborhoods in New York that are already impacted in one way or another um, by climate change because, for example, um, they're impacted by Sandy or, you know, or they are asking, you know, I mean, uh, are they going to be protected from flooding or not? And, and you know, have conversations there between experts and, and members of those communities. And then we'll have uh, two more semesters the following year, one Indeed, dedicated mostly to vaccination and another to the question of, of trust in algorithms um, and artificial intelligence. And, and uh, you know, those are very pertinent questions right now. So, so this is what I'm going to do right now. I'm not going to so much dedicate, uh, uh, sit down to, to write a, a new book about this, but sort of engage in those kind of conversations. And hopefully something will come out of this also in terms of, of how to think about trust and mistrust. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. Sure. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak to you. 